Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news. Good afternoon. I'm Rick Karneski, the host of today's show. We have a different kind of program today. This past October, the Berkeley Science Review hosted the live event, Touch Me!, as part of the Bay Area Science Festival. We've previously featured both the BSR and the Bay Area Science Fest here. Visit tinyurl.com slash calicspectrum to hear these past interviews. At the event, Dr. Kiki Sanford from This Week in Science interviewed three Bay Area scientists about the ways animals and robots navigate the tactile world. Lydia Tay from the Batista Lab here at Cal discusses the molecular basis of touch in the star-nosed mole. Benjamin T. from Stanford talks about touch sensation for robotics and prosthetics. And Daniel Cordaro from UC Berkeley's Keltner Lab reviews how we communicate emotion through touch. Here's the active scientist, George Ann Sack, from the BSR, to introduce Dr. Kiki. Hello? And welcome to Touch Me. We are the Berkeley Science Review. It's a graduate student-run magazine and blog, and we have the mission of presenting science to the public in an exciting and accessible way. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our late show host, the amazing Dr. Kiki Kirsten Sanford. Hi, everyone. I would like to introduce our first guest for the evening. Her name is Lydia Tay, and she is a graduate student in Diana Bautista's lab. She studies the interaction between skin cells and the sensory neurons that are involved in chronic itch. So let's talk about some of the basics of touch and and how, how it works. Yeah, so all of these the different sensations we have are mediated by neurons. So these are nerve cells. In the case of somatic sensation or the sensation of touch, these neurons, the cell bodies are right outside of our spinal cord, but then they send these long projections out to our skin and also inside in the viscera. And so these incredibly long projections at the tips in our skin have molecular receptors that are responsive to different types of stimulus. And we have lots of different types of touch stimulus. So you have light touch and painful touch. So light touch like when a feather brushes against your arm, painful touch when a book falls on your foot. There's also itch and there's also hot and cold, all these different sensations. And we it's actually a very complicated system. We actually have lots of different types of neurons that are tuned to respond to these different modalities of touch. Um, and that's actually one of the things that makes it really tricky. So yeah. it's not just that there's one kind of neuron. There are lots of kinds, and they're all over. Their, their projections are all over the body, dispersed. Yeah, so say in a square inch of the skin on my hand, for example, I'm going to have 
every kind of touch receptor there? Yeah. So you'll have, you know, you'll have the, if you have, I guess, depending on the part of your body, you'll yeah. have hairs and there are neurons that will innervate those hairs. And then you'll also have those that respond to pain and to cold and hot. And the innervation, the density depends on the part of your body. So the back is the least innervated spot. So if you have like two points of stimulus next to each other, on your back, it will be harder to distinguish than it would be, say, on your fingers. Your fingers are incredibly well-tuned. That's how come people can read Braille. Um, We're very sensitive to texture on our fingertips. Yeah. I've also heard that like that the lips in the face are one of the more represented areas yeah. of our somatose- somatosensory cortex. Yeah, so in the somatosensory cortex, people draw these things called the homunculus, where you have the shape of your body is representative of the um, innervation of these neuron fibers. And your lips are gigantic and your hands are gigantic and then your back is tiny, <laughs> for instance. Um, it's really a funky thing to look at, but that's kind of how our somatic sensation is. That's mm-hmm. that's how we feel the world, is mostly through our fingertips and our lips, I guess. <laughs> Let me find out a little bit about what you do in your laboratory. And I know there's an animal that you work with that is just is. fascinating. <laughs> So there's a long history in biology of using extreme systems or organisms to study the question you're interested in. Uh And so since the question we're interested in is touch, we use an organism that is really good at touch. And that's called the star-nosed mole. And it's this really cute mole that lives in Pennsylvania, and it has this organ. It it is really cute. (laughs) I think it's just funny to think of it just living in Pennsylvania. (laughs) It winters in Pennsylvania. (laughs) And it lives in these underground tunnels where there's not a lot of light. The main way that it forages for food is using this incredibly sensitive touch organ called the star. And it's it's the star that's located kind of in the middle of its face. And it has a bunch of appendages. Each of the appendages has these tiny bumps called isomerous organs that are highly innervated with mass sensory neurons that enables it to do incredible texture discrimination. So tell me a little bit more about the competitive aspect of the star-nosed mole. Yeah, so there are these tunnels underground. The star-nosed mole is not the only mole that lives there. There are lots of organisms that are using these underground tunnels. And they're all competing for the same food, the little worms, I guess. And the fact that the star-nosed mole can identify a worm that quicker and maybe those that are a little bit more difficult to discriminate means that they'll be able to take advantage of food that other moles might overlook. Right. Are they using uh, chemo sensation also? Is there, or is it only mm. touching the worm that makes the difference? Yeah. So actually, they start by touch. They 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 can move their uh, the appendages on their nose. So, so it, they move their yeah. It's moving. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And then they they touch it, and then they actually move the food closer to the mouth. They taste it to like, kind of like do a secondary test to make sure it's actually food, and then they eat it. But it's an incredibly quick process. It's amazing. We actually, when when you look at video, you have to watch it in slow-mo to actually see all of that happen. You can't see it with the naked eye. How do you study this in the laboratory? How do you actually investigate the touch and then uh, how they find the food? So there's the behavioral aspect, but there's also the molecular aspect. How are you studying this? Yeah, so that's the aspect that we 
spend most of our efforts on. The great thing about the mole is that it has this incredibly innervated touch organ. And so we can look at what molecules are expressed there. And if they're using a similar system as other mammals, we'd expect that the only difference is that the proteins that are involved in touch are simply upregulated. And so we can see what are the highly expressing proteins in these sensory neurons in the mole. They're easier to identify because the mole is like super touch sensitive. Mm-hmm. And then we can take those molecules and test, are they actually important in another organism that is a little bit easier to work with? You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. This week, we have recordings from the Berkeley Science Review's Touch Me. Dr. Kiki Sanford just talked with Lydia Tay about touch reception in the star-nosed mole. Now she'll discuss touch sensation for robots with Stanford's Benjamin T. I would like to introduce our next guest, Benjamin T., who's recently completing his PhD in the lab of Jenan Bao, and he has a master's degree in electrical engineering. He enjoys hiking, artistic mumbo-jumbo, randomly cliché poems, amongst other things. He likes building things, and his motto is, make awesome. So if we could all give him a warm welcome. Oh. How did you get into engineering? Uh, this is a difficult question, but I, I remember I was a pretty naughty kid when I was young. So I used to break a lot of things. Uh-oh. I, was, I got a really <laughs> big spanking for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that got me wondering, well, since I love to break things, maybe I should learn how to make things work. And that kind of perhaps subconsciously led me to, to a career in engineering and science. Awesome. To, to make things work. To make things work yeah, as opposed to... Breaking them, yeah. Do you still break things to see how they work? Actually, I do. Just to see how they work. <laughs> yeah. I can, I can fix them back now because I have engineering training. So, <laughs> so tell me a bit about what you need to be thinking about in creating a material that can act as a synthetic skin. What kind of factors are mm-hmm. you trying to work with and incorporate into that material? Right. It's a great question. So... Everybody knows your skin is stretchable. And the reason it's stretchable is because it uses organic materials that have bonds that are not so strong, like, for example, metallic bonds are really strong. So instead of using metal, we use stretchable materials like um, rubber, try to tune them to make them really sensitive to pressure. And that's, that's one of my first projects in Balzana's lab that I worked at for five years. Mm-hmm. So the first project was thinking, well, how can we make a piece of rubber, which is, you know, imagine the rubber is actually pretty strong and tough. How mm-hmm. can you make it really sensitive to vibration, for example? Right. How do you take something that could be used as a car tire? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and how do you make it something that's actually going to react to, like, I think in one of your projects, a butterfly yeah. wing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. That's one of my earliest projects, yeah. Yeah. And then... Mm-hmm. How do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so the way we do that is we create very tiny structures out of this rubber. In mm-hmm. fact, they're so small you can't see it. They're about 10 microns or less. So on a simple centimeter square, millions of them. Okay. And the reason is when you make really tiny structures out of rubber, they become really sensitive. 
Yeah. But at the same time, they also retain the elasticity, which is quite interesting. Yeah, so there's some kind of property of scaling exactly. with the material that yeah. changes its properties. That's right. Okay, and then what happens with the skin that you have created in the lab so far from that point? What does it do? Well, right now we've used it to sense butterflies, for example. Yeah. But the real test is, well, can we build a system that can sense pressure and... We're trying to see if we can integrate, for example, these kind of sensors into touchscreens, cell phones, mm. for example. I mean, it would be impossible to find somebody who doesn't have a touchscreen cell phone. I mean, correct yeah. me if I'm wrong. But <laughs> the statement is powerful because the reason it's so ubiquitous is that humans use touch all the time, right? And imagine now, because electronic devices can understand us through touch, that changes how we interact with the digital world. Right. But right now, your touchscreens today don't sense pressure very well. In fact, they don't sense pressure at all. Most touchscreens don't. So we hope to integrate this material into touchscreens to allow pressure sensitivity. Right, because so right now you have to have your fingertips. It's yeah, a, it exactly. has to do with properties of your skin touching the screen right. to allow it to conduct yeah. conduct electricity. But if you're wearing a pair of gloves, mm-hmm. yeah, you, your phone yeah. doesn't work. You have to take off your glove, and then you have to, to use it. So if your screen would just be touch sensitive. Exactly, pressure sensitive. Pressure to sensitive, yeah. yeah. Then you it might be have useful. functions, yeah. Yeah. So what about industrial robots, medical robots? Oh, yeah, absolutely. For example, the, the robot that fixed Luke Skywalker's hand. Mm-hmm. There's actually reality now with certain surgical robots that make <laughs> pinhole surgeries. They're, they're having a hard time now because it turns out that doing these pinhole surgeries actually isn't that easy for a robot because the robot doesn't actually feel the insides of your body very well. It doesn't know how hard it's pressing. And there has mm-hmm. been several cases where these robots are actually damaging to humans, even though the surgery wound is very small. Right. And so, so for example, you could imagine having this material to be put onto robotic surgeons that can then feel how well or how hard they're pressing so they don't burst the artery, for example, accidentally by the doctor, you know? Yeah. So, so actually, towards the end of my PhD, I was making dinner, actually, making lasagna, slicing up some cheese. <laughs> I actually cut myself, you know, and I realized that, you know, we have focused so much on how we can make the skin or electronic skin so sensitive, but nobody has actually looked at how we can make them heal themselves. As you know, you know, you actually, when, you, when you have a cut, mm-hmm. your skin bleeds and it has to go through a complicated process to heal. But in, in rubber, how do you do that? It's not that trivial. We actually made a material that is not only self-healing, but also conductive. What's your favorite thing about the work that you currently do? So I get to break things and make things. So, <laughs> so pretty awesome. Yeah, besides that, I think the cool part about the work I do is that I, I have a lot of time to think about what I hope to use these things for, mm-hmm. what I hope to be. And and so doing a PhD actually gave me a lot of things, uh, a lot of time to think about my next steps. And basically, I hope to, to create medical technologies, uh, basically to create, create an impact. So now I can satisfy my own curiosity, right? So mm-hmm. am I able to make impact for people besides just satisfying myself? I think that's, that's what I like about what I do. Spectrum is a public affairs show about science on KALX Berkeley. After Dr. Kigi talked with Benjamin T., She interviewed Daniel Cordaro about touch as a modality of emotion.
So I'd like to introduce our third and final guest speaker for the evening. His name is Daniel Cordaro, and he is pursuing a PhD with Dr. Keltner on the subject of identifying emotion in the face, voice, and touch. Thank you for coming in and being able to talk this evening. Yeah, thank you for having me. You've been traveling around the world for the last five years going to different countries, different continents, studying emotion and touch and, okay, the yawn question. Uh-huh. Across cultures, across the world, <laughs> around the world, yawns are endemic everywhere? Not only across cultures and across the world, but also across species. So all of our mammalian friends yawn too. So anybody have a dog here? Have you ever yawned with your dog? Yeah, it, it happens all the time. So a yawn is a universal, not only with humans, but also with other species. But that's that's exactly what I'm looking at is kind of cross-cultural differences. How did you get interested in that? <laughs> it's a great question. So I came from chemistry. That was my past life. And I kind of got hungry for social feedback. Is chemistry a fairly social... Discipline? You two guesses. <laughs> no, it's great. I, I love chemistry. It's a wonderful way to see the world when you understand the molecular makeup of something. A table is not just a table. It's something a little bit more nuanced. I don't know if you can tell I'm kind of an outgoing guy. Uh, <laughs> and one day when I was in a classroom, I was watching the professor, and instead of watching the professor, I turned my seat and I watched the class, and I had never done that before. And this idea popped into my head as a, as a scientist was like, maybe I can make predictions about the people in this class. Maybe I can tell who's going to pass and who's going to fail the first exam based on what I'm seeing in their nonverbals. I'd never done this before. I love it. And so I just kind of took notes on 20 random people, random. They weren't random because I picked them. Right. But I didn't know anything about psychology, so I was just kind of winging it. And lo and behold, based on behaviors like kind of engagement, leaning forward and nodding, I see some people nodding, thank you, you're encouraging me to continue. And then other people who were like kind of slouched back and drooling with a half-empty can of Red Bull next to their chair. Right. I kind of guessed which students were going to pass and fail the first exam with about 70% accuracy. And I was like, wow. That's, that's better than chance. There's something to this. Yeah. yeah, there's something to this. And I took the results to people in the chemistry department. They were like, get back to work. <laughs> you, you, what are you doing? You're wasting your time here. Yeah, no. And then through kind of a, a series of serendipitous events, I, I ended up studying this full time, uh, nonverbal communication. Worked with a guy in uh, San Francisco named Paul Ekman, mm-hmm. who really founded this field of nonverbal expression. Uh, and I had the, the privilege to work with him for about two years before transferring over as a full grad student at Cal, where I now study with Dacker Keltner in the Keltner Lab, studying cross-cultural expressions of emotion, of which touch is one modality. Yeah, so what does the bro hug mean? What does the bro hug mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there have been studies done um, in, in sports, for example, like like the bro touches, like head bumps and butt grabs and like high fives and all this stuff, can yeah. actually predict a winning season for a basketball team. Yeah. That's fascinating. It's really cool stuff. (laughs) Coming back from earlier conversation with Benjamin and also with Lydia, how would you speak to the other disciplines to try and get them thinking about your research? 
Right. Yeah. I think it's an amazing question because what we saw is a nice series of scientists starting from the biological and molecular level, then going into kind of the materials level. And then lastly, how do we make this an emotional process, a more human process? So combining the three could really take us into the, the next phase of human evolution, which is to create kind of another copy of ourselves. So I'm, I'm hoping that you guys can save me a nice space in a human zoo when the, the AI takes over. <laughs> <That's great. laughs> and I'll be part responsible for that because they will be emotionally wise. So emotion, is it self-reported, like taking surveys and saying, when this happened, I felt this way. When this happened, I felt that way. Are you doing MRI work where you're actually looking at the emotion areas of the brain? Are you... What are you doing? Yeah. What are you interested in? Emotion scientists do all of the above. Me personally, I like the uh, the nonverbal expression part. Mm-hmm. So one experiment asked the question, can two people communicate discrete emotions by using only the forearm? So if somebody sticks their forearm through a dark curtain, you have no idea who they are, you can't hear them, you can't see them, but you have an arm in front of you, and we give you a list of emotions... Can you convey those emotions by just using their forearm? How does it how does it turn out in the laboratory usually? That's like a great question. what are your what are your results? <laughs> <laughs> so the results are pretty amazing. There are some emotions that are incredibly accurate through touch. So emotions like gratitude and sympathy and sadness. These emotions that require closeness with another. Also emotions like anger, an, an aggressive emotion. Disgust and contempt do fairly well in these studies, too. But not without differences in gendered pairs. So there are, there are some gender differences to how touch is conveyed, too. Uh, mm-hmm. Even though you can't see who's on the other side of that curtain, 80% of participants can tell just by the feeling on their arm what the gender of their, their paired partner is. So the, the differences are pretty interesting. When we have two female partners... Happiness scores go through the roof. The ability to convey happiness between two female partners is staggering. It's like 60 or 70%. Male partners, no way, no way. (laughs) However, men are really good at expressing anger. (laughs) We see see across all of our participants, people can identify anger from a male encoder. And then a last one is when they're trying to encode sympathy. Women do really well with sympathy and, and men can't do it. When we have, <laughs> when we have two male partners, they, they can't convey sympathy. So there are some gender differences here too, but by and large, there's no, there's no benefit to being male or female overall. We right. all convey these emotions very well on average, but there are just certain emotions that uh, are different by gender pairs. So studying this and going around the world, what have you internalized and what have you what have you taken out of your research personally? Personally, um, I, I love what I do. I don't feel like I work a day in my life because I get to travel around and decode the human language of expression. Uh, everybody in this room, I don't know who you are, but I know that you speak two languages, your native language and the universal human language of emotion through the face, through the voice, and through touch. And understanding that has given me a profound sense of connection with everyone around me. No matter where I go, I'm never alone because I can always speak to the person next to me, at least in some way, shape, or form. So that's the biggest thing I think I've gotten out of this experience. Thank you so much for coming this evening. I hope you enjoyed your enjoyed the show. You can hear more from Dr. Kiki on This Week in Science at TWIS.org. And the Berkeley Science Review is online 
at sciencereview.berkeley.edu. Spectrum shows are archived on iTunes U. We've created a simple link for you. The link is tinyurl.com slash spectrum. A regular feature of Spectrum is a calendar of some of the science and technology related events happening in the Bay Area over the next two weeks. Here's Chase Yakubowski. New Star is NASA's newest eye on the X-ray sky, focusing on X-rays at higher energies than the Chandra X-ray Observatory. Since launch in June 2012, New Star has been uncovering black holes hidden deep within gaseous galaxies, including studies of the black hole at the center of our own Milky Way. On December 18th, Dr. Lynn Krominski of Sonoma State University will be giving a talk about the technological advances that made the New Star mission possible and will present several of its latest scientific discoveries. This event will be held at the Randall Museum in San Francisco at 7.30 p.m. on December 18th. Visit the San Francisco Amateur Astronomers website for more information on upcoming events. Saturday, December 21st, join the Chabot Saturday Night Space Talk featuring Farid Khalaf. With the proliferation of privately designed and built spacecrafts, the possibility of commercial space travel is becoming increasingly viable. In this presentation, you'll gain some insight into the future of space travel and understand how our traditional means of exploration are now history. So join the Chabot Space Team Saturday, December 21st from 7.30 to 8.15 at the Chabot Space and Science Center in Oakland. For more science and technology-related events, be sure to check out the year-round Bay Area Science Festival calendar online at bayareascience.org. And now here's Chase and Renee Rao with Science News Headlines. A new study, published December 5th in the journal Nature, reveals that an estimated half million cubic kilometers of low-salinity water are buried beneath the seabed on continental shelves around the world. The water, which could perhaps be used to eke out supplies to the world's burgeoning coastal cities, has been located off Australia, China, North America, and South Africa. Lead author Dr. Vincent Post of the National Center for Groundwater Research and Training and the School of the Environment at Flinders University says that groundwater scientists knew of freshwater under the seafloor, but thought it only occurred under rare and special circumstances. Our research shows that fresh and brackish aquifers below the seabed are actually quite a common phenomenon, says Dr. Post. He warns, however, that the water resources are non-renewable. We should use them carefully. Once gone, they won't be replenished again until the sea level drops, which will likely not happen for a very long time. Science Daily reports Professor Ken Naito and his associates of Waseda University's Faculty of Science and Engineering have discovered a revolutionary new energy conservation principle able to yield standalone engines with double or higher the thermal efficiency potential of conventional engines. If the effectiveness of this principle can be confirmed through combustion tests, it will not only open up the doors to new, lightweight, high-performance aerospace vehicles, but would also lead to prospects of next-generation high-performance engines for automobiles. Currently, Naito's group is working to develop a prototype combustion engine that will harness the benefits of his new energy conservation principle. Most conventional combustion engines today operate with thermal efficiencies around 30%, dropping to as low as 15% when idling or during slow city driving. 
If the group can develop this new engine with a thermal efficiency of close to 60% for a wide variety of driving conditions, they could unleash a new era of automotive transportation and even surpass the efficiencies of our most advanced hybrid systems. A recent study by UC Berkeley researcher Jean-Michael Mongo has shed light on one of the cockroaches' many disturbing abilities. The insects are famously hard to kill due in part to their astonishingly high escape speeds. The bugs move so quickly that they can no longer use their nervous system to regulate their speed. They instead rely on a mechanical enhancement provided by their antenna. Mongo tested the behavior of the critter's antenna on differing surfaces and discovered that the tiny bristles on the antenna are able to stick to rough surfaces and bend in such a way as to prevent the roaches from slamming into the walls at high speeds. He confirmed this hypothesis by lasering off the small hairs on some of the pests and running the trials again. This time, the antenna no longer bent. While a peek into the mechanics of the world's most tenacious pest is certainly interesting in and of itself, Mongo is actually applying what he's learned to help design robots that are better able to function at high speeds. The music heard during the show was written and produced by Alex Simon. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.